Light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats. Welcome to Leave Our World a Better Place. My guest today is Toby Sinclair from N Beyond Asia, and we'll be speaking a bit about his adventures in Nepal and India. Welcome, Toby. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be back. Toby, you've told us a little bit about your epic journey from the UK to India and the experiences that you had and what you hoped to encounter when you got there. You lived and worked in Kathmandu from about 1975, I think. That must have been an experience completely unlike to what home was like. Could you tell us a little bit about that and about how you immersed yourself in Nepal in those first few months after your arrival? Yes, it was very different and seems a long time ago. I thought I was very lucky. I met uh, someone called Jim Edwards, who owned a company called Tiger Tops in Nepal. By chance, I was working on an expedition in London, or doing the logistics of an expedition down the Zaya River, or the Congo, as it's not been renamed, and met this person called Jim Edwards. And he said, oh, you've been out to India, you've been to Nepal you're learning, trying to learn Tibetan, which is what I was then rather precociously. Would you like to come and work with us? And I was working, I, had a, I actually had a job in publishing. He says, why don't you come out to us for six months and help us with our publicity? Well, I knew nothing about publicity then. I know a little bit more now, but not a lot. And so it was a wonderful opportunity. So I grabbed it and he gave me a ticket. He promised me a place to stay and a return ticket. And, uh, not very much else. And so that was good enough. I was 20, I don't know what, 21, 22. And off I went. And when I got to Kathmandu, it was a sort of different world. It was medieval in, in a funny sort of, in a nice sense. It was old wooden buildings. Everything was manual. Everything was carried on people's back in the sort of streets of the bazaar. It was almost as if the wheel hadn't been invented, really, because there was no space for anything to go down those tracks. Mm-hmm. And I would sort of make sort of silly comments and ooh and ah when I saw things. And people said, oh, you should have been here 10 years ago. And that comment sort of echoes when I would meet people in the 80s or 90s who had just been to Kathmandu. And uh, they would have very similar reactions to the ones I had in the mid-70s. And I had to stop myself saying, oh, you should have seen it 10 years ago. <laughs> because within these 10-year periods, so much changes. But I was incredibly lucky. Tiger Tops was a company which had a, a lodge in the Chitwan National Park, uh, which is a place that we as and beyond with our office in Kathmandu, still send a lot of guests to. Not so much the Tiger Tops Lodge, that's no longer there, because all lodges have been removed from the inside of protected areas. But we still send clients to other lodges on the edge of that park, and it is one of Asia's great parks. And I learned an awful lot in those early days. Although my job was in Kathmandu, I sort of manipulated things so that I could go down to the park for four or five days mm-hmm. at a time once a month in return for which I, I worked Saturdays and Sundays in Kathmandu during the other weeks. And it was absolutely fine. Uh, it was a wonderful opportunity. And Tiger Tops was, as I say, in the park. Fresh food came in on a charter flight that we had every day. We had no electricity. So 
We use solar heating, rather primitive by today's standards, for hot water. We had kerosene lamps. Everything was made of wood and thatch, sourced from the surrounding riverine grasslands and on the edge of the park. Uh, we had a little generator, which we could run for about 40 minutes a day to operate a radio, which gave us a link to Kathmandu Airport so we could make sure we knew that the plane was coming down with 10 passengers or 15 passengers or 5 passengers. It was We mostly used twin otters, which were 19-seater planes. And that was it. You couldn't buy bottled water in those days, so all our water was boiled and then filtered through ceramic filters. And we had a very low impact. And what we as practitioners of responsible tourism today talk about and lecture about and try and reach as our goals for running a lodge or a camp or when we advise people or help friends set up things Mm -hmm. was the norm in the mid-70s because we didn't have a choice. And I keep reminding myself that when people talk about responsible tourism today and sustainable tourism, which is a very funny term anyway, I think, but we did that 40 years ago. Why? What's the fuck about it? This should be standard practice. So that was something I do look back on with amusement and with fondness. But I learned an awful lot in Tiger Tops. There was an American anthropologist and naturalist who spent 50 years by the end of his life studying tigers, a lot of that time working with the Smithsonian in Chitwan, called Chuck McDougall or Dr. Charles McDougall. And he was one of my gurus. And I learned a phenomenal amount from him. Uh, he's very patient. We learned yeah. early days of camera trap mm-hmm. or remote camera photography. But we didn't have infrared beams or complicated flashes or electronic shutters in our cameras. It was all mechanical. It was all manual. It was a lot of trial and error. And we had to create pressure plates. So when a tiger walked over up a path, he stepped on this pressure mm-hmm. plate, hopefully, and put two electrical wires contacted each other and threw a car battery, which was hidden in a bush or behind the tree next to it, set off the flashes. And these were wooden boards with wires. <laughs> and today we set up remote cameras to monitor wildlife populations or getting an uh, interesting photograph. And it was very amateur before and, in a way, a lot of fun. And we learned, we had to adapt. Sometimes we found the boards were too big or too heavy or not heavy enough, or unless the tiger stood right in the middle of it, it wouldn't connect. So there was a lot of trial and error. I learned an awful lot about photography. I learned a lot about tigers. I learned a lot by working with people like Chuck McDougall. And I was sharing a house in Kathmandu with a German filmmaker who worked for Survival Anglia, which is a UK company. His name was Dieter Plager. And he had come from work the previous 10 years, 15 years, working in, so from the early 60s to the mid-70s in East Africa. And he and Alan Root, who was one of the great cameramen of, out of Nairobi, did various projects together. So Dieter came to Nepal to make a film on tigers. And I shared a house with him in Kathmandu, mm-hmm. the house that he had for his base, I was a sort of paying guest, and that was I learned a phenomenal amount from him, met a lot of interesting people. And 
ended up actually assisting him a few years later on a couple of other early films that he was making on elephants and leopards in South Asia. So my interest Mm -hmm. in wildlife and my involvement in wildlife films sort of started about the same time. And I was working in a travel company, which ran a lodge, but we also had to handle the logistics of people coming into Nepal. There were many inputs and there were many levels of learning at that time. One of the first things that happened after nothing to do with my joining Tiger Tops was in early 1976, (laughs) Jim Edwards merged the best Mm. and earliest trekking and mountaineering company in Nepal called Mountain Travel. He went into partnership with them and then merged it into the Tiger Tops organization and sort of took over the day-to-day running. So soon after I had joined in 70, by now mid-76, it was felt that we should try other things. So we set up a rafting company, doing whitewater rafting in the rivers of Nepal. Now, people had done it from time to time on a sort of weekend trips and odd expedition. But we were trying to do it as a commercial trip so we could link trekking in the mountains, a raft, two or three day rafting trip, camping on the sandbanks down to Chitwan, where you have two, three, four days in the jungle. So we sort of control all bits of the itinerary. So we had a lot of fun learning that. I was sort of involved in taking pictures for marketing purposes. I remember designing a t-shirt where I stole some lines from Kenneth Graham's famous book, Wind in the Willows, which Mm -hmm. was There is nothing, absolutely nothing, half so much fun as simply mucking about in boats. It's (laughs) a book that I still have, but it was a fun T-shirt. So I learned about logistics. I I, I was 22, 23, and what an opportunity. I was incredibly privileged. I mean, most of us start a job in an office, and you're looking on stamps to put on envelopes Mm. in those days. But I wouldn't have done it any other way. And talking back to those years in Chitwan, is that where your interest in wildlife first developed, or was that something that dated back to to even further than that? I got interested in birds quite young. I had a New Zealand cousin who came to university in England and used our home in England as his base, and he was a great birder. And then his brother came over to study forestry, and he was an even better birder. He went back and subsequently sort of headed New Zealand's forestry service. And oddly, his involvement in New Zealand forestry used to take him once every two years back to Nepal, because the New Zealand government, because of the association with Sir Edmund Hillary and the initial ascent of Everest, was very involved in aid projects, and forestry was part of that in the Himalaya. So it was quite interesting that in the 60s, I would go Mm -hmm. birdwatching with my cousin, Nick, in Sussex, in England, and then in the 1990s and early uh, 2000s, we would meet up in Kathmandu because he was coming to do forestry projects in Nepal. Uh, And I would hear he was coming, and I would sort of find some excuse to go to Kathmandu. Mm -hmm. We would just meet for a day or even just have a meal, but it was an excuse to keep in touch. So I learned from him and two cousins of mine. And my mother was very keen on flowers, and to my everlasting regret... Mm -hmm. I don't have a, much of a knowledge about flora. For some reason, I seem to find it easier to identify birds that tend to fly away than I do to identify 
trees and shrubs and flowers that, sit, that stay still. You would have thought it would be the other way around, but I, my brain just doesn't seem to work that way. So I had an interest. And my father was, was a doctor and uh, was always interested in animals when he was a child. And they, he used to live in the center of London in Harley Street, sort of an old medical family. And so he walked across to the London Zoo. I guess this is in the 1930s and would spend time there. So he would share those stories. In Britain, we had an incredible public service, mm-hmm. which called the BBC, which broadcast on one channel in black and white in those days. But there was one character who started making the occasional film about tribes in Indonesia or music in the, in the Amazon or birds in Peru or West Africa. And we were allowed to watch his programs on Sunday evenings. And that was David Attenborough. And he was a BBC executive who was given time. He was given, I think I think you remember him telling me he was given sort of two months a year when he could go and make programs. And the rest of the time he had to come back and actually work in the office. And he ended up becoming controller of BBC. He started a, a channel called BBC Two, which really went into all sort of much more detailed documentaries and things and and revolutionized television because he introduced mm-hmm. color television to Europe. And we tend to forget what a pioneer he was and in many ways still is for those of us who've just watched his magnificent series on mm-hmm. Netflix. I mean, he's 94 years old and he's as articulate and as sharp and as in many ways more meaningful now and where he can get away with saying things age 94, which he would never have got away with when he was 30 or 40 or 50 <laughs> to say. And of course, all our attitudes have changed. And that's partly because of people like him and his thoughts, and what he brought into our homes and what he brought into our lives over the last 50 years has educated us, which is why working with a company such as And Beyond is such a privilege, because we're able to put into practice some of the things that he talks about. And as I just said, and oddly enough, some of those things are what I was doing in Nepal or watching Mm -hmm. and witnessing rather, rather than being actively Mm -hmm. sort of initiating in any sense 45 years ago. There is a certain sort of circular pattern here. So yes, I had that old interest. And of course, my life Mm -hmm. came full circle because then in the 2000s, I was able to work with David in 2001 on a series. In fact, I Mm -hmm. met him a couple of times earlier. And then I did another series work with him in the late 2000s. He was and is a huge highlight in my life. Mm. I can well imagine. Now, Toby, after a couple of years in Nepal, you moved back to Delhi. That must have been an immense contrast, you know, from this really sort of quiet and, and peaceful place to the hustle and bustle and noise that is Delhi. There are two or three reasons why I moved on to Delhi. One of them is a young girl who I had met in Nepal. She was moving down to Delhi. In a sense, I followed her. I was employed by Tiger Tops for six months, and I spent almost 18 months there in Nepal, and then um, moved down Mm -hmm. to Delhi when the office was open. So I actually ended up going from six months there to four years working for the company. And we started in India as Mountain Travel India, Mm -hmm. and our focus was on treks and climbs in the Himalaya. And of course, we suddenly had a vast landscape. I was lucky. I had been to Kashmir in 1974 on my first visit and to Ladakh for a few days then when it had opened up. 
And then in 1976, mm-hmm. after I joined Tiger Tops, I got traveled in India for a while in the summer, and an area called Zanskar had opened up. And I walked in to this place uh, with a German friend, and we spent, I don't know, about 12 days, I think, walking in and walking out. There was no road. On our way out, we actually met surveyors from the Indian Road Development Organization of the state government. And they were surveying to build a road yes. over the Pensila, which is a pass of about 14,500 feet, which we were walking across. And in June, there was still snow on the pass. And I remember we had to spend a night there and sort of waking up with a stonking headache. But that was a great adventure. And, and this was a Tibetan-speaking part of mm. India, linking Kashmir to the Tibetan plateau. I had a, a role to play when I joined Tiger Tops in Delhi in their office. My interest in wildlife was there. I was sort of indulged and given this opportunity and work. I used to still do projects for them in Nepal. And I was paid in cash in those days. I'm mm-hmm. not sure I should put this on record. I don't know. And uh, I didn't need a visa to live in India in those days. British nationals did not need visas. But I couldn't be employed officially. So I was still employed by Nepal. And about once a month, I would have to fly up to Kathmandu and... and uh, no wonder these airlines go bankrupt because they kept on handing out free tickets. In those days, I would go up to Kathmandu and collect my salary in cash. So I would end up doing two or three weeks' work in India and a week or 10 days' work in Nepal. And this went on for the next few years until 1980. During this time, I was I sort of got drawn into working on films. Dita mm-hmm. Plaga, with whom I, whose house I had stayed in Kathmandu, wanted to make a film on leopards and then a film on elephants, which involved India. So I would help get the permissions. He would obviously use our office, and that was fantastic. And I sort of got to learn my ropes. But it wasn't a full-time. It was just part of my job working for Tiger Tops. I remember taking Mm -hmm. a camera assistant of Dita's and going up to see someone called Arjun Singh, Billy Arjun Singh, who was an extraordinary man. And he had just been given a tiger cub, with the idea to introduce it into the wild. And he was pretty successful. It was quite controversial and still is controversial 35 Mm -hmm. years, 40 years later. But the tiger did go into the wild and did live for a minimum of four years, and she bred in the wild. And he was given this permission and this tiger cub by the Prime Minister of India, Indira Gandhi, because he had already had experience of reintroducing two leopards into the wild. And he's, in a sense, sort of India's or Asia's George Adamson. But Dita filmed a lot of this, so it's on record. Mm -hmm. And Billy Arjun Singh, Billy, became another hero, Mm -hmm. another guru to me. I learned so much from him, going up and staying with him. And once spent six weeks there. It was very odd to sort of get up in the morning and... Mm -hmm sort of stretch and go out of your room, which is where everything's at ground level on this farm on the edge of the forest, and have to look left and right to make sure there wasn't a tiger. <laughs> sure, that must have been pretty <laughs> startling. Corner. The leopards were, leopards in a sense tolerated and behaved themselves. This is very odd language I'm using, and I know that. The female leopard, I remember when she had cubs, she brought the cubs back to the farm because the forest was Mm -hmm. flooding, and the place that she knew was safe was a room on the first floor of the farm. So she carried these cubs in her mouth back 
and up an external stairs into this room on the first floor to keep the cubs safe. Even with the cubs 40, 50 yards away, she would come down and she would rub. She'd walk past you and she would rub herself against the back of your legs like a house cat does. But this is a full-grown leopard. You never put your hand down. You didn't touch her, but she would touch you. And then there was the tiger. And that was a different story because the tiger didn't have the same manners, should we say, or the way of behavior. I mean, I'm being very anthropomorphic. I'm sort of using human criteria. But we had to walk around with a stick and we had five-gallon empty oil cans and we used to bash it with the stick to make noise and try and scare her away. I mean, she was in charge and she was big, a much bigger animal and she was growing, she was boisterous and she... I think she was 18 months at that stage. You know, a big cat doesn't really go off on their own, normally separate from their mothers mm -hmm. until they're between 26 months. I've known male cubs yes. stay with their mother for two and a half years. Females tend to go earlier. Tara was her name, mm -hmm. and she used to go off into the forest only after she was about two years old. A remarkable animal and a remarkable privilege to have big cats walking around you freely. And you had to remember that they were in charge. We were not in mm -hmm. charge. And there was a time when we would want to sit and eat. We sat on a little terrace and we were caged in on this terrace. And the cats couldn't get into us. So they were wandering around and we were the ones in the cage. So that was pretty extraordinary. But the person in charge, and this was another interesting twist, yes. was not Billy. But Billy had a mongrel dog called Ely, and this dog controlled a full-grown <laughs> tiger and a leopard and cubs at different times of her life. And I always think that what Billy did introducing these big cats into the wild was remarkable. But the story of that dog mm -hmm. is even more astounding. An Indian pie dog from the nearby village. She ruled the roost. She kept these cats under control. I mean, I used to go mm -hmm. up. My my uh, Lakshmi, my wife, used mm -hmm. to come up. She and Billy got on very well together. When my son was born in the in 1982, when he was six or seven, I, he used to come up with us, and he would run around. By that stage, there were no cats around. Yes. It must have been very much sort of on the, on the pioneering side of, of wildlife reintroductions and and of certainly of wild cats being reared and rehabilitated back to the wild. Well, there was Gerald Peterson in South Africa, and there was George Adamson mm -hmm. in Kenya. And Billy, mm -hmm. as far as I know, that's it in those days. And certainly, I mean, things have changed so much. When, when you look back on it, it must seem absolutely incredible. But that's where it all began, and that's where the techniques and... Yeah, sadly, a lot of it's forgotten. None of these guys were very scientific. They were emotional. The way of dealing with things was sort of gut. But I have some mm -hmm. old photographs somewhere, rather faded black and white. Billy going for a walk into the woods behind his house, mm -hmm. which was into the park. And there you have this man who was then 60 with a stick, walking with a dog next to him on one side and a tiger on the other, walking down a forest path. It's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. And, you know, it might seem completely incredible to us, but it really is where all of the research and all of the science that then went into reintroductions started from examples like this, didn't it? I disconnect on science because Billy wasn't a scientist. He was a field man through and through, mm -hmm. passionate. Yeah. And he was a conservationist. And through his efforts, 
before he got the tiger, and this is his credibility, he saved a population of swamp deer, which was losing its natural habitat because it was being drained and the forests around it were being chopped down. So he would go out in his jeep and drive the deer back into the forest because they would come out into farmland. And then he campaigned in the 1960s and got this forest declared into a sanctuary. Then it became a national park, the Dudwa National Park, and then became a tiger reserve. And his farm on the edge of it, called Tiger Haven, was where he brought up these cats. He used to send the most strongly worded, I'm trying to mm-hmm. be polite, <laughs> letters to politicians from the prime minister downwards to get them to do things. And they, and they did it. He responded. And he ended up, this one man created a national park. He saved the population of one of the rarest deer in the world, the swamp deer. He introduced two leopards into the wild. He introduced a tiger into the wild. He rescued an abandoned fishing cat cub and brought, reared her and, and reintroduced that fishing cat into the wild. I mean, this man was extraordinary, but he wasn't a scientist. He didn't really keep notes. But you have to admire his passion and his work and his belief. And he did very well. I mean, he did something quite, quite extraordinary. And and Adamson's the same. These were difficult men. They're not easy people to live with. Mm. But it's because of that. And, And no government wildlife officer and very few scientists, who certainly any who have a family and other responsibilities, would be able to do this. Billy lived with those cats 24-7. Yes, it was an all-consuming thing. George Addison lived with Elsa and the other uh, all the time. I mean, the cheetah reintroduction that happened later in Namibia with Laurie Mark Crouds and her team, slightly different, I think, because the the cheetah's behavior is is so different and the sort of biology of the cheetah Mm -hmm. is so different. But equally remarkable. But now we have science to help us and yes. the work that Les has done and Simon does in Pindar and other parts of Southern Africa is equally remarkable. It's just that we have a record of it and we have it, it's more disciplined and more cautious and it's not a gut so much as scientifically driven, which thank God for that, but uh, mm. you would never, Billy would Billy or Adamson would be shut down within 24 hours if they tried to do what they did then, today? Oh, of course. But, I mean, we wouldn't be where we are now without without those pioneers and those people who actually raised the awareness of it in, in the early days, even though their methods might not have been what we would like to see now. Yes, I mean, I'm 60-plus, and I learned everything 40 years ago from these men who were then 60. Um, mm-hmm. And so I can tell these stories, and lucky enough, to introduce my son, who's mid-30s now, to, to meet Billy and to hear those stories. So mm-hmm. there are a lot of people who are today senior conservationists, or wildlife biologists in India, who as children were inspired by Billy's story or Addison's story. But they went down the scientific route, not the I'll-do-it-myself route, which is what mm-hmm. Billy did. <laughs> Toby, thank you as always. It's been incredibly interesting talking to you. We'll be exploring where you went to from here in another podcast. But for now, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. It always is. Thank you, Cassia. Thank you, Toby. Thank you for listening to In Beyond Fireside Chats. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. If you have any comments or feedback, 
or would like to suggest a topic you'd like to hear us talk about, drop us an email at firesidechats at endbeyond.com. We'd love to hear from you.